confession. Abuna, I sometimes lose my patience with my kids, the usual type of stuff, nothing too sinister, nothing too serious. I sometimes squabble with my husband. Again, the usual stuff, nothing too sinister or too serious. And I love the word of God, she told Abuna. I value my prayer life and I enjoy attending church services, but I don't do any of these nearly as much as I should. Other than that, she really didn't have too much to say. So Abuna probed, and she said, well, my dear, do you struggle with X? And she answered, no. Do you struggle with Y? And she answered, no. And this went on for some time. Abuna answered, asked her some questions, and she said, no. Finally, then Abuna asked her, why is it do you think that you don't struggle with any of these things? She thought about it for a while, and then she answered sincerely. Honestly, Abuna, I don't think I even have enough time to think about those things, let alone do them. The wise priest was quiet for a while, then he slowly leaned forward and said to her, Ah, so it's clear what your sin is. Yours is the sin of busyness. So this factitious account is simply meant to illustrate two points that I think many of us can relate to. The first is a simple one that all of us at some point in time or another have felt overworked, stretched too thin, or simply put, just way too busy. The second point is a more insidious point. Although we might think of busyness as something that is just unavoidable at times, or even just a normal part of life, or even more so, we might wear our busyness as a badge of honor or as a badge of importance, but instead, as the priest suggests, Maybe there is something more sinister at hand. Maybe busyness in itself is a sin. So the scope of this talk is not to, it's not intended to explore the psychological, the emotional, or the psychosocial impl implications that busyness might have on us, nor is it intended to explore issues of work-life balance. It's not to say that these aren't important, but that these are beyond the scope of this talk. Instead, what we're gonna focus on is this idea of, sin as a, of busyness as a sin and thus explore the implications of busyness on our spiritual lives. Okay, so naturally the first question is, why is busyness even so bad? And to answer this, we must first examine what lies at the heart of busyness. Or in other words, what is the driving force behind it? At best, it might stem from a noble cause a desire to be successful, or a desire to make a difference in one's life or in the lives of those around him or her. Or it might stem uh, from a desire to be a good steward of the talents and the time that God gave us. It may also stem, but at the, but at, at, so that's at its best. At its worst, it may stem from an insecurity. So that is, the person might derive his or her self-worth from their accolades and, possession, and possessions rather than who them, they are. Or it might stem from vanity, the need to be seen, the need to be praised, or the need to be the best. Or it might stem from anxiety, so being driven in order to prepare, um, to be over-prepared for an uncertain future. And maybe for each of us, the truth is a little bit of both. So let's then explore these best case and worst case scenarios. At best, the root of my busyness is a noble cause. 
So we're reminded of the parable of the great banquet. So as St. Luke writes, a man held a great banquet and invited many, but they all alike began to give excuses. Do you remember what those excuses are? They were all noble excuses. One had purchased the land, another had purchased very expensive possessions, and another had just gotten married. And they all politely declined saying, please have me excused. Nonetheless, our Lord says that the master of the house became very angry. Thus, Christ is teaching us that even though the excuses are noble, they are still unacceptable. Or in other words, there is no noble excuse for missing the banquet. That is, according to our Lord, the idea of a noble excuse is in and of itself a fallacy. So then if we find ourselves saying, no, Lord, not now, or as these men said in the parable, please have me excused, then our Lord is giving us a stern warning to re-examine our priorities and to re-examine our busyness. At worst, the root of our busyness is not from a noble cause. And whatever the source of our busyness is, whether it's insecurity, vanity, anxiety, or anything else, we're, confound, we're confronted with a very basic question. And that question is, do I truly believe in God's providence? Or to put it another way, if I truly believed in God's providence, would my self-worth be derived from my titles and my possessions? If I truly believed in God's providence, would it matter how much to me others perceived me in their eyes? If I truly believed in God's providence, then would I worry so much about my future and about the future of my children? Maybe it's not until we accept God's providence that we can let go of our anxieties. St. Peter instructs us, cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. The key here is because he cares for you. We have to accept, we have to believe and accept that he cares for us. Or in other words, we must believe and accept God's providence in our lives. It's only then that we can cast our anxieties on him. And if my anxiety persists, what I'm saying is that my anxiety exerts a greater force on my life than that of God's providence. Or to put it more simply, what I'm saying is my anxiety is greater than my God. Let's linger on this idea of God's providence for just a moment longer. There's a great comfort and steadiness that comes in one's life from a keen understanding of God's providence. When we are able to see God's hand in the good and even more so in the bad, there is wisdom and peace that follows. Because what happens is all becomes good and there is no bad. I'm reminded of the story of King David and Shammai. One day when King David was walking along the road with a group of his soldiers, there came out a man of the family of the house of Saul whose name was Shammai. And he threw stones at David and at all the servants of King David. And Shammai said as he cursed, get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. Then Abishai, one of the king's soldiers, said to the king, why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and take his head off. But the king said, if he is cursing me, but the king said, if he is cursing because the Lord has said to him, curse David, then who shall say, why have you done so? Leave him alone and let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. So David and his men went on the road, while Shammai went along the hillside opposite him, 
and cursed as he went and threw stones at him. See here how David sees the hand of God in everything. Even in being cursed, he sees the providence of God. How can any anxiety occupy the heart of a person whose heart is already filled and occupied with the knowledge of God's providence? Maybe this is what it is meant to be, to be a man after God's own heart. Okay, so where does this leave us? We see that there are many different root causes to busyness. Some seemingly benign or even noble, but some are much more malignant. But in the end, it doesn't matter what the excuse is for not attending the master's banquet. Because as we see in the parable of the banquet, all of the guests gave noble causes, excuses for not attending, yet all still invoked the master's anger. As such, we can be certain that the, that the cause, in fact, doesn't matter. And the reason is this. Whatever the cause may be, noble or not, it all leads to the same thing, separation from God, which is the very definition of sin. And as Solomon the wise teaches us, beware the little foxes that spoil the vineyards. The little foxes are those little sins, the ones that are subtle, the ones that are not easily detected. But as King Solomon warns us, beware the inconspicuous sin that nonetheless leads to utter destruction. And there might be no more insidious than this sin, the sin of busyness. Separation from God. Let's explore this idea a little further. But instead of looking at it from the negative, let's flip it and let's explore it from the positive. So the antithesis of separation from God is intimacy with God. This is a topic that we kind of always but never really talk about. Why do we pray? Intimacy with Him. Why do we read the Bible? Intimacy with Him. Why do we live a sacramental life? Intimacy with Him. This is why growing up, the answer to every Sunday school question always seemed to be the same. It's always pray, read the Bible, take communion, have confession. It's kind of simple, uh, and it is, but to state it another word and in a single way, it's intimacy. Not to be too hyperbolic, but if we really interrogate it, if we really look at it and try to understand it, intimacy with God is really the whole point. There's a reason why there is no analogy that is used more in the scripture to describe the relationship between God and his people and God in the church in the New Testament than that of a bridegroom and his bride. Intimacy is the reason. There's a reason that King Solomon, the one who asked and was granted great wisdom, wrote an entire book, The Song of Solomon, about a bridegroom and his bride, meant as a metaphor between us and our relationship with God. Intimacy. And finally, there's a reason why one of the most sacred passages in one of the most sacred books, what's referred to as the golden chapters in the golden book of the Gospel of St. John. Just before Christ enters the, the Garden of Gethsemane, begins his passion. He says 11 times, abide in me and I in you. Intimacy. Abide in me and I in you. There's no use of language that I can imagine that is more expressive in communicating God's deep desire for us to have an intimate relationship with him. And maybe our Lord's repetition, abide in me and I in you 11 times, is an invitation to each one of those of his 11 remaining apostles.
It's almost as if our Lord is yearning for it. Not out of his need, but instead out of our need for it. That is what God wants for us. He wants it for our sakes, not for his sake. And maybe it's not just an invitation for each of those apostles, but maybe it's an invitation for each one of us as well. Our Lord is calling each one of us to have an intimate relationship with him. And maybe it's an understanding this, our Lord's deep desire for us to have an intimate relationship with him that we can begin to make sense of a seemingly difficult statement that Christ, by Christ when he says, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The church fathers write volumes about this, which is beyond the scope of this talk. But in light of what we've discussed, if we really do consider our relationship with God one of deep intimacy, as one between a, bride and a, a bridegroom and a bride, then maybe it starts to make more sense. Who of us would want a spouse that loves his or her mother or father more than us? None of us. Who of us would want a spouse that says, I love you, but I'm not willing to suffer for you? Or I love you, but I'm certainly not willing to lay down my life for you. None of us. And who of us would want a spouse that would say, I only worked so hard and was so busy all the time because I love you and I wanted to provide for you. But we can imagine that the spouse, like our God, would probably answer saying, but all I really wanted was you. So we see clearly now the danger or the sin in busyness. And it's in this, where there is a life filled with busyness, there is no room for intimacy. Maybe there is great wisdom in the old adage, less is more. And maybe this is what King Solomon the Wise meant when he said, better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. Our hustle culture praises the person who pushes his or her limits. We're told not to leave anything on the table. We're told to want, to push, to persevere, to succeed. But do we ever catch that thing that we're chasing after? Or as King Solomon puts it, are we merely chasing after wind? Are we chasing after something that can't even be caught? An ambition that can't be satiated? And these are not in themselves necessarily bad, but we must remember that the wisdom of this world is the foolishness of God. It's not to say that there is no good that can come from hard work, dedication, and perseverance. But maybe the message from King Solomon, again, the man who was given God-given wisdom, the man who was king and who had attained more than anyone before him, maybe the message is that it's to no avail, that it's short-sighted, that it's foolishness. Or as King Solomon puts it so eloquently, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does a man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? I'm also reminded of the words of Job who says, my days are swifter than a runner, they flee away. And the words of King David who says, teach us, O Lord, to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. In fact, 
we find that this mentality of go, 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 and more, more, more is actually in direct opposition to God's law from the very beginning. In the Old Testament, we find three commandments that God gives to his people that are meant to, in fact, promote the exact opposite of this. Or for lack of a better term, they're meant to teach us to leave some buffer. The first is keep the Sabbath. The message here is to set apart some time dedicated for intimacy with God. The second is tithing. In the book of Leviticus, it says, every tithe of the land is the Lord's. We often think of it only in monetary terms, but that's only part of it. God wants us to give a tenth of all that we have, all that we do and all that occupies us. And the third is gleaning. In the book of Deuteronomy, it says, you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore, I command you do this. When you reap your harvest, when you reap your harvest, when you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheath in the field, you shall not go back and get it. The message here is twofold. First, remember that I am your redeemer. Or in other words, remember God's providence. And the second is do not harvest aggressively or leave some buffer. But why is it that God commands us to leave buffer? First, I'll say what it's not. It's not because he needs it. It's the Pantukrator, the creator of all things seen and unseen, does not need my Sunday. He certainly does not need my money, and he does not need my scraps. But there is something that God wants. He wants me. Not that he is in want or in need of me, but simply that he wants me. Or stated another way, what God wants for me and for you is intimacy with him for our sakes. But how can we say it's for our sakes? Unfortunately, there's a common misconception that life is a test, or worse yet, that life is the fire in which through pain and suffering we might be purified. And it's not to say that there aren't any truths or any edification that, be, that can come from this, but how do we reconcile it with statements like, I came that they may have life and that they may have it abundantly, or where sin abounds, grace abounds much more, or in the world you have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world, or rejoice in the Lord always, again I say rejoice. If we look more closely, there's something that all of these promises hinge on. It's Him. Or put another way, life is good when we walk it with Him. Because even in the midst of the bad, even in the midst of the pain and the suffering, as long as God is in our midst, like He stood with the three youth in the fiery furnace, there's no other possibility but goodness. Or put another way, it is for our sakes that we have intimacy with him. But what if intimacy with God seems foreign to me? Then what? If you feel this way, you're not alone. In his wisdom, King Solomon writes, the one who is full loathes honey, but to the one who is hungry, everything bitter is sweet. This is truly a profound statement. And the message here is that when we are filled, he does not say with what, 
But, the, but given the way the proverb, proverb is written, we can assume it's with something ordinary, something bland, something like bread. When we are filled with the ordinary, the busyness of this world, then even the honey, the unordinary, the spiritual, the divine, will have no taste. Or even worse yet, when we are filled with the busyness of this world, we will loathe or despise the sweetness of the spiritual life. To be clear, honey is meant to represent the sweetest thing imaginable. It's not that the subject does not like the taste of honey, but instead that he's already full, that even the thought of it would make him or her groan. This is how, this is how we are when we are filled with the busyness of the world. We come to loathe the sweetness of intimacy with God. Intimacy with him has no flavor. But King Solomon gives us the solution. He says, but to the one who is hungry, everything bitter is sweet. The answer is to become hungry. Or in other words, I must first empty myself of the busyness of this world, then I'll be able to taste the sweetness of intimacy with him. This reminds us of when the psalmist wrote, Be still and know that I am God. And we recall that it is in stillness that Elijah hears the voice of God in a whisper. And not only that, but King Solomon teaches us that even what might at first seem bitter, prayer, reading the Bible, attending the liturgy, even these things can become sweet when we empty ourselves of the busyness of this world. And maybe this is what Christ meant when he said, for my yoke is sweet and my burden is light. Yoke here is referring to God's law. And recall that a yoke is a device that was placed around the neck of many oxen in order to bind them together to perform a certain task. What God is saying that his law around our necks when carried in fellowship together and with him can be sweet and light. Okay, so that all sounds nice, but fill in the blank, right? Like it all sounds nice, but fill in the blank. In other words, what if it's just not possible for me to be less busy? What if there are certain seasons that just consume me? What do I do next? First, never minimize the value of your offering, however small it might seem. Remember the young boy who gave the little that he had, which is five loaves and two fish, our miraculous Lord fed thousands. Remember also when Christ asked the men of Bethany to move a stone. Surely the God who would raise Lazarus and his decayed flesh could have moved that stone. But the lesson here is this. Never underestimate what you can do, even if it seems small. Do the little that you can and God will do the rest. Next, if it seems impossible to leave your desk or if work is just too consuming, then find a way to make your desk an altar to the Lord. Maybe that means evangelism, through actions or through words. Maybe that means listening to hymns or sermons while at work. Or maybe it means just contemplating and gnawing on the Word of God at your desk. Or if it seems impossible to lighten your social obligations, then find a way to make Christ a part of those social obligations. And finally, I'm reminded of the story of the widow and the two mites. We often think, and rightly so, that she, what she did was so great 
because she gave all that she had. It wasn't the absolute value of it, but instead it was the irrational proportion of what she gave that moved our Lord to praise her. This is true, but there's another lesson here that I think relates to our topic today. Our Lord spoke about the widow saying, For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, and she, uh, everything she had, all she had to live on. We often focus on the everything part, but maybe the key here is out of her poverty. She gave that thing which she needed the most. Maybe for me or for you, that's not money. Maybe it's time. If we find ourselves trapped in the sin of busyness, saying, okay, that all sounds nice, but in reality, fill in the blank. For us, it might not be two mites, but instead, it might be two hours or even just two minutes. Never discount the little that we have to give. Brothers and sisters, if there really is no other way to be less busy, let's not see it as a curse, but instead let's see it as an opportunity. An opportunity to give from the best place possible. To give like the widow out of the depths of our own need. When we are just too busy and we don't know what else to do, let us remember the example of the widow so that like her, we too may be lucky enough to garner the praise of God. Glory be to God forever. Are there, are there any questions? Randy, thank you for that. It was really, really deep. And there's a, there's a lot to take in. Um, I think two, two thoughts occur to me, hopefully complementary to yours. One is, I think we should be aware of the contrast of busyness of the world versus our spiritual life because we can find busyness in the spiritual life we can make all the time in the world for church come to hundreds of liturgies prayer agbeya all day long and that becomes our busyness it becomes a way to occupy ourselves and even worse make us feel self-righteous because we're doing a lot of things when in fact the lord may find all of that detestable and I use that word because that's the word used in Isaiah when it comes to the sacrifices that he didn't accept. So uh, I'm curious what you think about that. The, the second thing is you use, you use intimacy a lot, and that's such a beautiful concept. Um, I find intimacy begins with him, and his love begins with him. The mother's love starts with the mother. Uh, the, the marriage which is sort of too equal, the analogy goes to a certain point. Mm -hmm. But if you read Ephesians 5, it's Christ who died for the church. So the husband's love starts, and it's the wife who reacts in, in this sort of sacramental marriage. That, so, so sometimes we think intimacy, intimacy is something I have to do. Mm -hmm. I have to read my Bible more, and that way I become more intimate with God. But if we flipped it and said, it's God who's the one that's trying to be, and he's the one knocking at the door. He's there. Just like it says in the book of Acts that he is near to each one of us. And he's there. The intimacy really is just the turning on the switch 
or maybe being a little bit more aware of the constant love and grace he's showering us with. So I'm curious what you think about that. Those are two excellent points. And I think the answer to the first question is the second question. So I think the, the answer to the first question is about, so to recap about the busyness, um, like filling your, your life with spiritual busyness, the answer is, well, where's the intimacy? So everything comes back to a relationship with him. Okay, so I think the answer to the first question is, uh, of course, we don't want to just have vain repetition. But it's not to say repetition is bad, but this must support a relationship between me and, me and my God. Um, now to speak about the, the second point, I agree. I agree completely. Um, I'm reminded of the story of the fig tree. And I heard a beautiful sermon once that said Christ hungered, like he yearned for he yearned for the fruits of the fig. So I think it's always important to remember that as much as we love God, He loves us way more. Uh, and He yearns for us. So I think that was kind of a point I was trying to push, is that God wants our intimacy for our sakes, right? It's for our benefit. If we want to live the good life, then we live it with Him. So I think it's for, for our sakes that he wants it. Um, and I remember something else I heard in a sermon by our blessed father, Kurodos. <laughs> Actually, it came right in time, Abuna. Um, it was something that I always wondered about. And when Abuna said it, it was, it was, uh, it was beautiful. Um, it was about the story of the young rich man. And he, he, this was like... Uh, better man than I can ever be and he came to God and he asked a better question that I can ever ask he said to Christ he said good teacher what can I do to inherit the kingdom of God what a beautiful question from a beautiful man and then Christ responds why do you call me good and I always was um, confused about that how can Christ uh, seem to admonish this man that asked such a, such a great question and what Abuna said in that sermon is Christ was reorienting him. The man was concerned about the what. He was concerned about the checklist of things I need to do. Maybe speaking to your first question. He was concerned about the busyness. I can do this, I can do that, I can do this. But Christ was saying, why do you call me good? Who am I to you? It's about intimacy. It's about a relationship. Um, so I kind of went on long there. I apologize. But the, but the point is, you're exactly right. Uh, and we must always remember that the busyness and the things we do are not the important thing. The important thing is the relationship who we have it with, and that's Christ. And I also want to say, like, even with um, the busyness, it also comes down to the love of the heart and how you do that busyness for God, right? Mm -hmm. So I think of, like, the mother and the child, and, and they're do even folding laundry, right? Or the husband's helping with the dishes, whatever it is. If they're doing it in their whole heart and they're just doing arrow prayers and saying, God, I do this out of love for you. I do this out of love for my family. I do. So I, I think even the busyness of, of services or even work can yeah. be shown out of gratitude and love for God. Yeah. Right. And you're right. We still need that intimacy. Of course, we still need that part. But even I feel like we can have the intimacy in the busyness yeah. if it's given to God. And, and you said that at the end. I agree. Yeah, it's a great point. I think that's the benefit of, of suffering in that when you suffer, 
it makes you present. Mm -hmm. It slows you down. And in your suffering, you can actually experience God in real time. And it takes away the busyness, because I think busyness for me is what did I accomplish and what do I have to do? Mm -hmm. So I'm always thinking of what, is, what isn't really there. So busyness is always distracting me from what is current and what is present. So the suffering for me has been a, a benefit in that I'm not busy as much as I, I used to be. Yeah, that's a, good, that's a great point. I think we should uh, wrap it up because we have the servants meeting. Is that okay? So uh, let's stand up for prayer. In the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, one God. I mean, we thank you, Lord, for all things. We thank you, Lord, for the great blessings and graces you bestowed upon us this day. Bless our lives, bless our service, and through the intercession of St. Mary and St. Paul, hear us when we pray. Thankfully, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. There will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses. We forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, for that is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. I mean, those who are going and leaving, peace, peace be with you. If you're a servant, please stay. So start right away. Um, <clears throat> Nanny, can you tell the servants in the back that we're going to start? Uh, or let Jermaine, anybody know?